welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Welcome back to the podcast. It's time for our team timeout. Our patient today is still the upper GI esophagogastric module from the general surgical curriculum. And our patient, or the topics we're going to be covering today, are esophageal motility disorders. Before we get into today's topic, a brief bit of trivia. Did you know that the first treatment for achalasia was a forceful dilatation of the cardia using a whalebone? That's enough silliness from me. In general, esophageal motility disorders can be considered as a number of different entities. This includes achalasia, which is the main topic we're going to be talking about today. In addition to this, there is the hypertensive lower esophageal sphincter, diffuse esophageal spasm, nutcracker esophagus, and ineffective esophageal motility. These names represent various different types of esophageal dysmotility disorders, and the way that we classify these is based upon two features. The first is what is going on with the lower esophageal sphincter and the function of the lower esophageal sphincter. And the second thing is how the esophagus itself is contracting and working. The Chicago classification, which is a classification of esophageal motility disorders, uh, the most recent classification update, which was version 3, was published in 2015 in the Neurogastroenterology Motility Journal, classifies these different esophageal motility disorders in a hierarchical approach, firstly looking at whether or not there is issues with the lower esophageal sphincter and the drainage of the esophagus. So that's group one. And these are the achalasia subtypes, as well as the hypertensive lower esophageal sphincter subtype. The second group is looking at major disorders of peristalsis. And this includes diffuse esophageal spasm and nutcracker esophagus or hypercontracting esophagus. And the third group is looking at minor disorders of peristalsis which includes ineffective esophageal motility. It's worth having a look at this classification to get a better idea in your head about how these sort of all fit together. Starting with achalasia, this is the most common primary motility disorder of the esophagus. Saying that though, it is still pretty rare with an incidence of about two to three per 100,000 people. The definition of achalasia is a lack of effective peristalsis of the esophagus with incomplete or no relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter. And really that lack of relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter is the key differentiating factor between achalasia and those other types of esophageal motility disorders that I briefly mentioned. The pathogenesis of achalasia is not completely known. We do know that it's characterized by a progressive degeneration of the myenteric plexus of Orbach and usually is thought to be a viral or autoimmune reaction with an inflammatory infiltrate of that myenteric plexus, which leads to neuronal loss and loss of the function of the esophagus. 
In South America, there is a relationship between achalasia and what's called Chagas disease, which is due to an infection with Trypanosoma cruzi. Patients with achalasia will typically present with progressive dysphagia. They may also have regurgitation, chest pain, and associated weight loss. The diagnosis relies on history, examination, and investigations. History is, as we've just discussed, looking for those typical presenting symptoms, and clearly you want to try to differentiate between reflux and dysphagia. Examination usually doesn't show anything in regards to the chest and abdomen, but it's important to look for secondary causes of esophageal dysmotility, such as systemic sclerosis, polymyositis or dermatomyositis, and systemic lupus erythematosus. Patients who present with a history of dysphagia will often have been referred for a barium swallow by the GP prior to reaching you. The characteristic feature on barium swallow for achalasia is what's called the bird's beak appearance, which is where you get uh, tapering or distension of the distal esophagus tapering down to a narrow lower esophageal sphincter. It's worth looking up some x-rays of what this looks like on the internet. In addition, this may not be present, but you may see esophageal dilatation, and the esophageal dilatation itself can be graded from grades one to four, with grade one being normal-sized esophagus and grade four being a large sigmoid esophagus. Patients will often then undergo an endoscopy because if somebody has a history of dysphagia, you want to rule out other causes, which may include a malignancy or what we call pseudoachalasia, where a malignancy is invading the lower esophageal sphincter and causing symptoms that are similar to achalasia. At endoscopy, you may see a distended esophagus and it may be difficult to pass through the lower esophageal sphincter, but these are not specific and not diagnostic for achalasia. Really, the endoscopy is to rule out other potential causes of their symptoms, which include reflux and pseudoachalasia with a malignancy. The next investigation, which is the gold standard test for achalasia, is high-resolution manometry testing. What this involves is placement of pressure sensors via nasogastric intubation of the esophagus. The patient is then asked to swallow and the catheter will make recordings of the pressure in the esophagus and the pattern of the esophageal muscle contractions. This is recorded as a series of images and these give you the information you need to know how that patient's esophagus is functioning as well as the function of the lower esophageal sphincter. There are three types of achalasia which can be diagnosed based on the manometry studies. All three of these types have lack of relaxation or no relaxation of the esophageal sphincter, and the types have to do with what the esophagus itself is doing. So type 1 is where there's absence of contractions of the esophagus or panesophageal pressurization that does not reach 30 millimeters of mercury. Type 2 is panesophageal pressurization, which is more than 30 millimeters of mercury. And type 3 is spastic or no real activity of the esophagus. Type 1 and type 2 respond best to treatment, with type 3 having the poorest response to treatments. Moving on now to treatment. Unfortunately, there is no cure for achalasia. And the treatments mainly focus around improving drainage of the esophagus by different methods of opening up the lower esophageal sphincter. 
The principles of management of this condition are firstly to confirm the diagnosis, which is where the manometry comes in, to exclude pseudoachalasia, which is where the endoscopy comes in, and to determine the exact type of achalasia in order to select the most appropriate treatment. In terms of options for management, these come under medical, endoscopic, and surgical. Medical potential treatments include the use of calcium channel blockers, which cause smooth muscle relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter. Unfortunately, these are not used uh, regularly as they are only partially effective and they obviously have their own side effects. Endoscopic options for treatment include endoscopic injection of botulinum toxin into the lower esophageal sphincter. This is usually reserved for older patients who are not fit for dilatation or surgery. It does have a good response, but this response is limited, usually to three to six months. In addition, it's important to know that these injections cause scarring and fibrosis, which can make subsequent surgery or dilatation more difficult and can also increase the risk of perforation with dilatation. So moving on to pneumatic dilatation, this is an approach where the lower esophageal sphincter is serially dilated every four to six weeks. It's quite cost-effective and initially patients usually have a good response, but there's a high incidence of recurrence over sort of the next three to four years after they get that response, and there is a 2% risk of causing a perforation with this procedure. There was some comparison studies into pneumatic dilatation versus surgical myotomy, which showed similar outcomes, but dilatations often require repeat procedures. And again, these are usually used in elderly patients who are not fit for other approaches. The last endoscopic option is relatively new um, and is a procedure called a POEM, which stands for per-oral endoscopic myotomy. This is a endoscopic procedure, as the name suggests, that involves an incision through the esophageal mucosa in the distal esophagus. A tunnel is then made underneath the mucosa, and through this tunnel, the muscle layers are incised using an endoscopic approach. At the end of the procedure, the endoscope is withdrawn and the mucosal defect is repaired, usually with clips. The myotomy can be quite long if required and can extend down into the uh, proximal stomach as well. The risks of this procedure are obviously associated with esophageal perforation and injuries. If that mucosal abnormality does not heal, there can also be an incidence of pneumoperitoneum requiring decompression during the procedure, and there can be bleeding. In general, though, it does seem that this is a successful procedure with about a 95% success rate out to two years. However, there isn't a lot of long-term data about this procedure yet. The main downside of this procedure is actually in relation to opening up the lower esophageal sphincter and the subsequent incidence of gourd uh, that occurs after this. As part of the laparoscopic Heller's operation I'm about to talk about, a fund application can be performed to reduce the incidence of reflux after this procedure. However, this is not possible with a POEM approach. So lastly, we'll discuss the surgical options, which nowadays mostly is the laparoscopic Heller's myotomy. This operation is typically done after gaining laparoscopic access to the abdomen and retracting the liver with a Nathanson retractor by mobilizing the periesophageal fat pad off the lateral aspect of the upper stomach. 
incising the phrenoesophageal ligament in order to gain access to the paraesophageal space and mobilizing the esophagus into the chest approximately four to five centimeters whilst identifying and protecting the vagus nerve. A longitudinal myotomy is then made with incision of the internal and external muscle fibers, at least four to six centimeters up the esophagus and two to three centimeters down onto the stomach. And endoscopy can be used during this procedure to ensure that you are extending that two to three centimeters down onto the stomach. It also gives you an opportunity to confirm that there is no mucosal breach with the myotomy. If this procedure is done correctly, patients will get reflux. So an anti-reflux operation such as a fund application is usually performed at the end of the operation. In my institution, this often is a 90 degree anterior wrap of the fundus suturing with interrupted sutures to the right cruse. Potential complications of this procedure include damage to the esophagus or the stomach with perforation, damage to major vessels such as the aorta or IVC, pneumothorax or cardiac injuries during the manipulation up into the chest, wound infections, reflux or a wrap that's too tight causing dysphagia. In addition, like I said, this is not curing the problem of their esophageal motility, so it's important to make sure patients are aware that this is not going to completely improve their symptoms, but the aim is to improve their quality of life. And in follow-up appointments, you can use the ERCART score to measure how successful the procedure has been at improving their symptoms, and this score looks at weight loss, dysphagia, retrosternal pain, and regurgitation with a score of 0 to 3 for each of these and a maximum score of 12. If you end up with a score of less than 3, then the treatment has been considered successful. It may be that patients deteriorate in terms of their symptom control over time and a reassessment of their esophageal function and other procedures may be necessary throughout that patient's lifetime. I'll briefly go into some of those other types of esophageal motility disorders which are talked about in the Chicago classification. So the first one that follows on from achalasia is hypertensive lower esophageal sphincter. There is some discussion about whether or not this is its own entity, um, but from what I have found, basically this involves a high resting pressure at the lower esophageal sphincter, more than 45 millimeters of mercury on manometry, but with normal relaxation and normal peristalsis of the esophagus. The manometry findings are not diagnostic of achalasia, but it is theorized to be a similar process of that of achalasia. The management of this condition is either Botox injections or balloon dilatations, and a Heller's myotomy may also be useful to release the pressure in the lower esophageal sphincter and improve esophageal drainage. The next group I'll talk about is that second group as per the Chicago classification. So this is the group where there is normal pressures and function relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter but there is a issue with the motility or function of the esophagus itself. The first of these is diffuse, or I've also seen it written as distal esophageal spasm. The definition for this or the diagnosis on manometry is that there is premature contractions in at least 20% of swallows, but like I said, there is normal examination of the lower esophageal sphincter. 
This has changed in the most recent update. It used to be that the esophageal contractions were repetitive, simultaneous, and of a high amplitude, but it was found that this was a non-specific parameter, so that has been updated. These patients will present in a similar way as all patients with esophageal problems with dysphagia, chest pain, regurgitation, and a barium swallow may show the classical appearance of this pathology, which is that of a corkscrew esophagus, uh, but this is very rare. It's worth looking up an x-ray of that. It's quite impressive. Only about 60% of patients with this condition will have an abnormal appearance on the barium swallow. Some patients may show a rosary bead esophagus where you get these kind of uh, little beads of contrast because of that contraction. And you can also get sacculations or pseudodiverticulae. Manometry, though, is the gold standard as it is for all of these motility problems. And we've just gone through what the diagnosis is on manometry for this condition. The pathophysiology of this is unknown, but it's thought to be related to a loss of inhibitory neurons in the distal esophagus. The treatment is aimed to try to reduce these contractions. The medical options include calcium channel blockers and nitrates, which have been shown to have a small effect, but usually don't make too much of a difference in the swallow. There has been some use of botulinum toxin injections into the lower esophagus to try and stop that spastic activity, which does improve uh, symptoms in the short term. Uh, but again, um, only about 50% of patients will have a response and this will be limited to three to six months. And more recently, there has been some use of POEM with a long myotomy to divide the muscle in the lower esophagus. This doesn't have any long-term data or randomized control data, but does have some early positive results. The second condition in this group is the nutcracker esophagus. I've also seen it written as the jackhammer esophagus, but basically is, the, is a hyper-contracting esophagus. And this is basically involves a really high pressure throughout the entire, entire esophagus, but usually with normal peristalsis. The diagnosis of a hypercontracting esophagus on manometry requires at least 20% of swallows having a distal contractile interval more than 8,000 millimeters of mercury. And this again is a change from the previous Chicago classification. The presenting symptoms of this condition is usually chest pain and issues with swallowing such as dysphagia and can also include reflux disease. The cause of this condition is not known. The investigations in, as all of these conditions include barium swallow, which unfortunately for jackhammer esophagus may be normal, and manometry, which we have talked about. And it's key to note again that the lower esophageal pressures should be normal, but it can be associated with high lower esophageal pressures during the contractions, um, which may indicate that there is an element of outflow obstruction as well. The management is, again, very difficult. There has been some use of uh, calcium channel blockers and nitrates to try to relax that muscle, which uh, don't have great results. Um, in addition, there has been botulinum toxin injection, which some small series show success rates of up to 71%. And POEM has also been investigated in these patients. A recent meta-analysis though only had 37 patients, but it did show some success of this procedure. The last group I'll talk about is that third group, which is minor disorders of peristalsis. 
the main one in this group is ineffective esophageal motility. And this is diagnosed on manometry when more than 50% of swallows are ineffective. It's thought that this condition may be related to chronic inflammatory injury of the distal esophagus due to gastroesophageal reflux disease. Usually when reflux disease occurs, acid receptors in the distal esophagus invoke a increased peristalsis and clearance of the esophagus to help clear that acid. It's thought that ineffective esophageal motility is an issue with that function of the distal esophagus to clear acid. The clinical features of this condition are associated with reflux, so heartburn and regurgitation, but can also have those symptoms of dysphagia and chest pain. Barium swallow isn't great at picking up this condition, but manometry will diagnose it as we discussed earlier. The last topic I'll touch on today is secondary causes of esophageal motility issues. These are crest syndrome as part of systemic sclerosis, polymyositis or dermatomyositis, systemic lupus erythematosus, and some other conditions such as diabetes, strokes, Parkinson's disease, and myasthenia gravis. Briefly to go into systemic sclerosis and crest syndrome. Crest syndrome is a limited cutaneous form of systemic sclerosis, which is a connective tissue disorder. It is an autoimmune disorder and it involves autoimmune antinuclear and anti-centromere antibodies, but the cause of this condition is not really well understood. The features of Crest syndrome involve calcinosis, which is thickening and tightening of the skin, and deposition of calcium nodules. Raynaud's phenomenon, which is where cold temperatures and stress cause a vasoconstriction of the small vessels, and this particularly affects the hands and the feet. Esophageal dysmotility, which is due to atrophy of the myenteric plexus and smooth muscle in the esophagus, and sclerodactyly, which is skin thickening of the fingers. T stands for telangiectasia, which is dilated capillaries that occur throughout the skin. Treatment of esophageal dysmotility associated with Crest syndrome is treating the primary disease with immunosuppressive drugs and other medications, which would be run by a rheumatologist. Use of a PPI for esophageal reflux. But unfortunately, there is no good cure for this condition. I hope that was a useful summary of esophageal motility disorders. Thanks so much for listening. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!